At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I am with Adrian Crompton, who is the quite recently appointed Auditor General for Wales. Uh, Adrian, you're not from Wales, but you're not from far over the border, are you? (laughs) No, uh, I was born... um brought up on the edge of the Forest of Dean and uh, is still where I live today. And I mean, my knowledge of the Forest of Dean is very much linked with uh, the TV playwright that I'm a great fan of, Dennis Potter. Yes. Um, you, you don't come enormously far away from where he well, was Well, I went to yeah? school in a place called Berry Hill, which I think is where Dennis Potter was from. So, uh, yeah, he was a, a feature of my early days. <laughs> what sort of uh, community were you living in at that time? Yeah, it's a small uh, a little village community, very tight, as most of the populations in the forest are. I loved it, you know, and that's why I came back to it. You know, that uh, sense of being rooted in a community is really important to me. My family has lived um, uh, in the same village and area for generations, so I like that sense of homeliness and rootiness in in home life. Tell me about your studies. Um, Well, I uh, followed a very kind of traditional path, Uh, left school, went to university, um, studied economics. Where was that? In Bath. Then uh, post-graduation, I um, had no idea what I I wanted to do. Uh, So I went and lived and worked in uh, Paris for a year, doing a whole raft of things. I was a removal man. Uh, and a barman and did all sorts of odds and sods and then came back from that and sort of took my first step on the career ladder uh, saw a job advertised in the house of commons research service and i thought oh that sounds interesting so i applied and um, never looked back house of commons research service has actually got a very good reputation amongst mps of all parties um, i know over the years having dealt with uh, mps that they're uh, very appreciative of the work that the research service does because it is a genuinely neutral Mm -hmm. uh, body Mm -hmm. isn't it it's not skewed in any way towards what the government wants absolutely no that's it's it's enormous strength that uh, you know mps politicians in all parliaments are um, not short of information but what the house of commons uh, research service and we have a a very similar um, arrangement in our own assembly here what it provides is something that is neutral, politically impartial, factual. You know, it pre- presents members with the data, the analysis, the the commentary that they need on which to base their political arguments. And that sort of uh, reliable, impartial source of information uh, and advice is a very precious thing. Uh, so yeah, that's the real strength of the the research service in the Commons, and um, that was the basis of my training for the first decade of my career. So how long did you work for then? Yeah, so I was in Westminster for about ten years. Absolutely loved it. So it had not been um, 
a conscious career choice that I wanted to pursue. I, I fell into it by, by chance, but it just opened up a whole world that I fell in love with and it became my real passion. Uh, learning more about parliamentary democracy, seeing our politicians up close, just you know, gave me a real uh, buzz. Uh, and it's been the, the thread that's run through my career ever since. Uh, so I stayed in uh, Westminster until shortly before the referendum. In 97. In 97, yeah. And so I remember staying up late uh, one night. I was probably the only person in Wapping who uh, stayed up to watch the final results come in for the uh, referendum on the Assembly. Because I was conscious that if we uh, had an Assembly in Wales, then there was a career path for me there. Uh, so the following day, I wrote a, a letter on spec to what was then uh, the Welsh office and got a reply a couple of days later saying, more or less, when can you start? It was the easiest job application I ever went through. So I moved out of London, moved back to this part of the world uh, and started work uh, with the Welsh office for a year prior to the establishment of the Assembly. So helped with the initial setup and so on and planning for some of the structures and services that we put in place in those early days. So obviously you'd been brought up in uh, the Forest of Dean just across the border in Gloucestershire. What was your sense of Wales before you actually came to work here? <laughs> Ooh, oh, well, I think that a lot of it was uh, rugby and sport-based, you know. I'd played rugby in the forest and some of our deepest rivalries were with uh, teams across the border. So you had, there was that kind of rivalry of neighbours that's really quite strong. I guess, you know, my impression in the early days was Wales just kind of keeps its head down and keeps quiet on a lot of things. And at the time, it benefited in some ways for doing that. You know, it was just able to come in under the radar and on the, the coattails of uh, things happening over the border. And you can see that running through. I think, you know, we're slowly but surely getting to grips with that and becoming more self-confident in uh, and asserting our position. I think that's really important. But that, certainly back then, was the impression I got. When I first started in um, in Cate's Park, I remember a feeling of it being a bit quiet and low-key and, you know, just didn't have the buzz and the energy that I'd been used to in Westminster. But that has certainly all changed now. How would you characterise the changes that have taken place in the Assembly since you've worked there, and as you said, you've worked there from the outset, because yeah. you got off to a, yeah. a very strange start, both in terms of the kind of institution it was, because it was a sort of hybrid body, wasn't mm. it, mm. Uh, where you didn't have the split between the legislature and yeah. the uh, executive in the way that subsequently there was. And also, from a political point of view, it got off to an odd start, didn't it, because there was all that stuff with Alan Michael versus uh, Rodri Morgan, yeah. which um, dominated... Um, the first nine months of the assembly, really, until mm. Alan Michael um, eventually left. Uh, so there was a bit of a false start, perhaps. But how do you think the institution has come on since you um, since you started? Uh, it's just unrecognisable. And um, yeah, I've been privileged. I've been at the heart of a lot of that evolution, or been in a position to see it close up uh, throughout the story of devolution in Wales. And it's been a fascinating ride. I think one of the interesting things for me was was just how quickly the politicians themselves demonstrated that the the old corporate body model just didn't work for our political culture you know so they 
put in place their own mechanisms to counter it as best they could within the constraints of the legislation at the time very, very quickly. I mean, the, fundamentally, the, the place has evolved in the space of 20-odd years um, from a, a pretty odd, weak institution to one today that has all the features and characteristics of any fully-fledged, mature parliamentary body, you know, with fiscal powers now as well. Um, the members themselves undoubtedly have developed uh, skills and the political culture that you would see uh, in parliaments all around the world. The staff and, uh, and structures that sit around the institution are now comfortably on a par with any that you'd find in uh, bigger parliaments elsewhere. Uh, and the whole culture of the place now is very, very definitely recognisable as a parliamentary one. And that wasn't there in the very early days. And in constitutional terms, 20 years is click of the fingers, you know, it's absolutely nothing. So I think it's fascinating and a real tribute to everyone involved that it's come on in that way in such a short period of time. There have, though, been some criticisms made usually by ex-ministers uh, when they leave office. I remember Andrew Davis, mm-hmm. um, who, of course, mm-hmm. was uh, for a period the economy minister. Yep. After he left office, he gave uh, some lectures, I think, uh, in which he was quite critical of the civil service and he was saying that it was very difficult sometimes for ministers to get what they wanted through. Do you think he had a point at all? Um I can't really speak for the civil service because, um, you know, I uh, uh, have never worked uh, at the heart of that side of the operation. You know, my focus has always been on supporting the parliamentary branch. But devolution was a a massive change for the civil service in Wales. It had to develop policy development capacity that it simply would never have had to have pre-devolution. So... It wouldn't surprise me if ministers commented on some with some frustration, especially in those early days. But uh, you know, my observation now uh, from my new role, uh, you know, in a limited period of time, looking at how the, the the Welsh government machine is set up, it very clearly is designed around the priorities of ministers in in a way that you would be would expect to see in all Whitehall departments. So. Yeah, the, the executive branches had to go on the journey just as much as the legislative side. One of the interesting things about the legislative side, if you like, is that very much from the outset, uh, the people who have sat in the presiding officer's chair have seen themselves, haven't they, as something more than simply somebody who does mm-hmm. that. They've wanted to drive mm. the institution forward mm. Um, obviously, the um, the first presiding officer was, was David Ellis mm-hmm. Thomas, who came from a, a nationalist background, who obviously wanted the institution to succeed because, in a sense, that was um, a very significant staging post uh, on what his approach to Wales as a nation was. Did you get that sense that uh, that there were that there were people who were actually, in a sense, taking things forward in a way that wouldn't necessarily have happened had they not had the will to do it. Oh, crikey, yes. And um, that's a good thing. You know, the the speaker, the slower, the presiding officer in in any parliament is an absolutely critical figure. And, you know, is the person best placed to act and speak on behalf of the institution itself? 
in respect of, of David in those early days, you know, this was a, a newly formed institution. By crikey, it needed somebody to speak on its behalf and shape it and mould it and give it self-confidence and, and capacity to grow. And, you know, he certainly did that in his time and Rosemary Butler took it on and certainly Ellen Jones is taking it on now. And I think that's absolutely needed. You know, a parliament that does not have a person at its head politically prepared to speak and act on behalf of the institution and the system itself rather than just the political uh, fights of the day is absolutely critical. There has been a sense that some people have had during the course of the devolution story that there has been too much of an obsession with constitutional matters mm. and not enough with policy delivery. Mm. Um, now, obviously, you're on the legislative side, so you can see the, the benefits of developing the legislature. How would you counter that sort of criticism? I understand the argument, absolutely. But if you haven't got the, the constitutional arrangements and the structures and the capacity in place then you won't be able to deliver effectively through our parliamentary uh, model. So all those endless wrangles in the early days about powers and definitions and so on were absolutely needed to enable any government of the day and any assembly to undertake its role effectively. One of uh, the equivalents today is around the size and capacity of the institution. Again, bone dry to most people and it, it, it doesn't feel to to many as though that's the burning issue. But I hope we've got a parliament, you know, that's going to last hundreds of years and now is the time to get it right and fit for the future. And um, any institution in a parliamentary setting needs capacity, member capacity, to, to work effectively. Otherwise, you know, legislation will be the poorer, policy will be the poorer, uh, governance will not be challenged and kept on their toes in the way that our system demands. Uh, so yes, I can see that they're dry and, and won't feel top of many people's priority list, but I think they're absolutely crucial and even more crucial to get right in the early days of any institution. Of course, just over a year ago when you were still at the Assembly, uh, the report of Laura McAllister mm -hmm. was published and again it has recommended uh, a number of um, uh, institutional changes. Uh, clearly uh, it's in favour of uh, significantly increasing the number of AMs. Uh, it's talking about changing the electoral system. Uh, one idea is that uh, it introduces mechanisms to ensure that there is a gender balance mm -hmm. uh, and also talking about things like um, job sharing for mm -hmm. assembly members. Do you think that the assembly members themselves and their parties are ready to take up the challenge that Laura McAllister has put to them? Because while there have been a number of the recommendations which have been accepted, perhaps the more uh, radical ones, including even the idea that it's necessary to have more assembly members in order oh. to provide the proper scrutiny, hasn't yet been taken on board. Yeah. And uh, there seems to be a certain hesitancy about yeah. doing so. Yeah, there is never a good time to argue for more politicians. Uh, I think Lauren and her panel recognise that. I'll go back to, to what I said just now. It's vital, I think, for the future of 
the democratic system that we have in Wales to get these things right and to get them right as soon as we possibly can. You know, with Brexit and the devolution of fiscal powers, the, the pressures on the capacity of the institution have never been never been more than they are now, and they're just destined to increase. You know, the argument for some will be about the cost, cost of more politicians. The Welsh Government is responsible for spending £15 billion making laws that affect the lives of everybody uh, in Wales in fundamental ways. And the Assembly's job is to check and control and scrutinise and challenge uh, all of those decisions. Now, if you can put in capacity amongst the members to improve the work that they do in that regard, you don't have to make many improvements to legislation or many uh, improvements to spending decisions and big government policies to recoup the cost many times over. So I think the uh, value for money argument represented by an assembly with greater capacity and therefore uh, a better functioning assembly is frankly quite an easy one to prove. As for the political parties, it is a big challenge for them and, and you know I can understand why it's difficult for them to to campaign for this. I would hope uh, that there are politicians who are foresighted enough, see the bigger picture, uh, uh, think about the future sufficiently to prioritise this and say it's right, uh, and hopefully to build a, a political consensus that stops it being a party political issue, it's just something that we grasp the nettle and, and solve now. I think that during your time at the Assembly, you didn't simply restrict yourself to what was going on uh, at that institution in terms of developing it, but you did get involved in some overseas projects as well, which... Uh, yeah. uh, tell, us, tell us about those. Yeah, I... Um, well, about 2013, I think, at the, the tail end of 2013, I uh, took a year out and did some work with uh, a small uh, social purpose uh, consultancy called Global Partners Governance, who work around the world with parliaments and political institutions and governments to try to strengthen uh, democratic structures in emerging, developing uh, democracies around the world. So I did a lot of work in, in the Middle East and North Africa, so in Egypt, Jordan, Sudan, Iraq, working primarily with politicians, parliaments, parliamentary officials, to try to do what I could to help them build their own democratic systems and, and culture in those countries. So I started in 2013, carried on doing it until I took up my, my current role. So I did it alongside my work in the Assembly for, for several years. It was some of the most exciting, stimulating, rewarding work that I've ever done and really reinforced um, my belief in uh, the political systems and culture that we have in this country. Uh, when you go to places where uh, they don't benefit from some of the, the freedoms that we do here, it really brings home to you just how important uh, those things are. Uh, so, yeah, fascinating work that really changed my view on a lot of uh, important issues. Of course, in 2011, we had what was described at the time as the Arab Spring, where there were protests uh, going on, which often started with uh, people being dissatisfied with their economic lot mm. um, and wanted ultimately to change the regimes under which they lived. Um, if we look now at what has happened in the Middle East since mm. then, it's hardly a positive story, though, is mm. it? Because you've got mm. a situation where um, in Libya, for example, uh, where you had, um, albeit um, 
a totalitarian ruler in Colonel Gaddafi. Nevertheless, there was a degree of stability uh, there. And uh, now, after the uh, intervention by NATO, and particularly uh, perhaps to the front of that were um, uh, the uh, British under David Cameron and the French under Nicolas Sarkozy, the, the country is in complete chaos where you have slave markets, etc., some people would argue that for people coming from Western democracies to seek to impose a similar sort of approach to governance on mm. very different cultures is a manifestation of uh, neo-colonialism. Yeah. What would you say about that? <laughs> I'd say the, I'd completely agree with them because absolutely the wrong thing to do is to try to impose our system our political system, structures, culture on anyone. Uh, that's not helpful and is not what I was trying to do or uh, my colleagues were trying to do. These things are incredibly difficult to do to help build structures and a political culture anywhere is extremely difficult, extremely difficult when the political situation um, is so challenging uh, and it takes time. It uh, isn't something that, you know, post-Arab Spring, anyone um, could just swan in and, uh, you know, a year or so later witness, you know, all the structures and uh, freedoms that we'd anticipate seeing in the UK, uh, see similar uh, formed in, in the Middle East. So I think the onus on us uh, in the West, I think, is to offer our help and support. There are things uh, in our political culture and design that are of value, but individual politicians and players in individual countries need to pick and choose what is best for them and fits them. Uh, and that's the work that we try to do um, uh, uh, in the Middle East and, and North Africa, to try to offer our advice, but point out what works and what doesn't work for us um, so that people shape uh, a model that works best for them. It will take time, like I said, but um, in all the countries in which I worked, you know, I came across people with a genuine uh, commitment and passion to see things improve for their country. And they operate uh, in incredibly difficult political circumstances under a lot of pressure. And they may not see the fruits of their work for many years to come, but they are determined to try to make things better. Uh, and I think the onus is on us to play our part. We're quite happy to um, uh, to step in and intervene uh, aggressively in, in some parts of the world. If we do that, even more responsibility on us uh, to be there for the long term and to help rebuild and reconstruct. I understand that one of the places that you went to was Basra, which mm. of course is a uh, place name which will be familiar to many people who will recall its uh, significance from the Iraq war yeah. and subsequently it was a, a hot spot of violence wasn't it mm. Um, mm. so what work did you do there and how is it um, panning yeah. out so the work I did in Basra was to support the regional elected assembly there just fascinating because at the time uh, what was happening in Iraq was decentralization of a lot of powers from the center in Baghdad to different governorates. And so what we saw in, in Basra were local politicians having to increase their capacity 
to have political debate with their counterparts in Baghdad who were of different political persuasions over the boundaries of their devolution settlement, over the funding flows that did or didn't come uh, with that responsibility, and locally trying to build up their administrative and um, political capacity to deal with that. So you can see, you know, substitute the words Baghdad and Basra for London and Cardiff, and you have this incredible parallel with our experience here. And so I hope that was uh, the value of the work that I was able to bring, some really relevant, direct uh, experience from our experience in Wales that seemed uh, extremely relevant and, and valued by the people there. And I remember one evening after we'd been working with the staff and members all day, uh, we had a visit from a young fella who had been the secretary helping to organise all our meetings and the programme for the week. It was on St David's Day and I'd made a big thing with the governor that day of it being St David Day and I'd given him a daffodil and so on and explained the significance of the day. And this um, young man, Mahmoud, arrived uh, where I was staying, presented me with this wonderful cake with Arabic script iced onto the top, said, congratulations, Wales. And he presented this to me and gave me a big hug. And I thought, this is amazing. This young man, who was in his 20s, his entire life had seen British troops, British presence in some way in his city, and now me arriving from the UK as well. Yet his welcome was not aggressive at all. You know, he uh, was an incredibly... A sincere, committed individual who wanted to improve the lot of his city and his region. Incredibly humbling experience. Did you need a bodyguard when you were there? Uh, yes, we'd have a, a security team assigned and would travel around in convoy and with flak jackets and all the rest. How did you uh, cope with that? Uh, it's a bit, it takes some getting used to, um, but the security teams are incredibly uh, professional uh, and reassuring. And the reception from the people I was working with was also incredibly friendly and welcoming. So uh, after the initial unease, uh, one gets to grips with it fairly rapidly. It just becomes a feature of what you have to do, but doesn't get in the way. Now, of course, you've embarked on a new role, Auditor General for Wales. In some ways, it's a departure, but I guess in other ways, it's a continuation of the kind of public service work that you've been involved with for many years. Mm. Did you get approached to apply for the job or did you see an advert or <laughs> how did that come about? Uh, no, no, they didn't approach me. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, aware of it. You know, it's an appointment where the assembly plays a part in, in identifying the, the preferred candidate. So I was aware of it inevitably through my work. And the Auditor General is clearly a key officer uh, who supports um, committees of the assembly in particular. I must admit, I, I'd not uh, thought of it long term as a career path for me. But actually, when the, the position became available, I thought, well, actually, this is an amazing extension of what I've done uh, all through my career. You know, I played a part, I hope, in trying to um, serve the democratic system and hold government to account. And that's a critical element of what the uh, Auditor General and the Wales Audit Office does. So, yeah, it feels now like quite a natural uh, segue. It's an amazing position, you know, uniquely privileged position to see the whole of the workings of the public service in Wales uh, and to have 
the independence and authority to to hopefully comment on that, to shine a light on good and bad practice, uh, and to help drive improvement uh, and change across the public service. It, it's an amazing role. So I think that essentially what you are in charge of is an organisation which is dedicated to trying to improve organisations that, that exist. Do you ever think that there are um, organisations that are actually, and I know you've only just started a job, but you've been around for quite a long time, organisations that just aren't up to it and which have to be completely reformed and almost started mm-hmm. from scratch? Um, well, sadly, I think it's inevitable that in uh, in, a, in, a, in quite a large developed public service, there are going to be elements which are not working. And it's uh, in part my role and the role of the, the audit office to identify those examples, to shine a light, and to uh, try to, to squeeze out that sort of mismanagement of finance or poor governance, poor behaviour. Fundamentally, though, uh, I think there are many more parts of the public service which are well-managed, well-run, and our job is to try to assist them in facing up and dealing with the, the sort of challenges and pressures that they face today. You know, it takes me back in many ways right to where we started this conversation with my role in the research service when we talked about the importance of reliable, authoritative information. That's what I think the public service needs. I think it's what the population of Wales expect and what uh, the political class need in order to form a basis for their political debate and decision taking. So I see it very much as part of our role to make sure that that reliable, trusted information base is put in front of the people of Wales, put in front of the different public bodies in Wales and put in front of the politicians and decision takers in Wales. That's a a vital part of the jigsaw that we can play. There's a political narrative which is quite common in Wales, which is that a lot of the shortcomings of service delivery can be attributed to austerity policies. Mm -hmm. I think some people would take the view that such an argument has its limitations and that while uh, obviously the uh, shortage of funding does have an impact, there's more to it than that. And Mm -hmm. I suppose that's where you come in, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I've tried to do in these early days in the role is to get out to meet the chief executives of every one of the public bodies in Wales um, that we engage with. So it's going to be a lot of meetings. Uh, It's going to be something, 70, 75 face-to-face sessions with people across local government, the health service, central government, uh, etc. Now that's giving me an incredible perspective on the pressures and challenges that public bodies face. Of course, a lot of them talk about austerity and the financial situation um, that they are in. But they talk just as much about the other challenges that they face. Demographic uh, changes, the digitization of society, uh, the challenges that will come post-Brexit. You know, these are huge fundamental changes in the environment in which the public service operates. I've been hugely impressed, I have to say, by the clarity of thinking that senior leaders in the public service uh, 
are able to demonstrate by their appetite to deliver services to the public in the very best way that they can in the face of those huge fundamental changes and extremely tight financial situation. So things are easier when you have more money, self-evidently, but um, it's not the be-all and end-all. You know, there are ways to transform fundamentally uh, the delivery of many of the services that we provide uh, to the public in Wales. Uh, and frankly, that's, I think, what we have to do, uh, given the scale of the challenge and the financial climate in which we operate. We have to do things differently rather than just trying to shave a little bit, bit off here and a little bit off there. So your approach to the job is very much scrutiny and holding organisations to account in the way that uh, one would like assembly members to be holding the government and ministers to account. But you also don't want to uh, damage relations with the individuals who are in charge of these uh, mm. of these uh, of these bodies. I mean, one thing which I have noticed, and this isn't uh, re- relating to uh, your tenure of office, but quite a few years there has been a tendency when reports are published by the Wales Audit Office to to go in on a line which states something like, um, generally speaking, such and such an organisation <laughs> is doing extremely well. However, there are a few shortcomings. And then sometimes you actually have to read quite a long way down in the report mm. before you get mm. to what the shortcomings are. And I mean, I would argue, and I'm sure others would argue, that the purpose of the WAO is to identify shortcomings rather than pat people on the back. Where do you stand on that sort of um, dichotomy? Well, things are are rarely black and white. So, you know, public service delivery is a complicated uh, environment. So I can, uh, you know, well understand why why sometimes messages are are balanced in that way. I don't see it as my job to to come in and kick uh, anybody in the public service just because I can. That's not helpful to anyone. Where we identify things that need to be highlighted because they are poor or inappropriate, then absolutely we have to do that and do that very clearly and firmly. But uh, I see it as our job as well to work alongside the public sector, to be partners, to assist them uh, in dealing with the challenges that they face. The messages that I'm getting back from uh, leaders across the public service is that we're pretty good at the moment uh, in managing that relationship that people trust us, uh, whilst at the same time recognising our independence uh, and the need for us to keep some distance between ourselves. But absolutely, I see it as our role to be assisting the public service, uh, not just um, criticising it. I think uh, also what we need to do is to be more timely uh, and immediate in some of our commentary and interventions. You know, there are very few issues related to public spending or public service delivery in Wales uh, on which the Audit Office does not have some serious expertise or uh, a raft of information uh, and uh, data that would be of value. Uh, And I think uh, one of the things I'd like to do is uh, just push some of that out a little more and in a little more... um, timely fashion so that we are trusted commentators uh, on the big issues of the day providing people like yourselves uh, and the public at large 
with that reliable evidence-based platform uh, on which to, to base our arguments. Adrian Crumpton, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.